and welcome to The Right Idea, where we discuss the people, policy, and politics that drive Texas. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. I'm the Chief Communications Officer at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And with me, as always, is our Vice President of Research, Derek Cohen. Hey, Derek. How's it going today? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. I think we got a special treat for the crown. Well, you know, it is a trend among podcasts that instead of doing their own content on the podcast, they're going to take content from other podcasts and make it their <laughs> podcast. And so we're going to try that uh, phenomenon today. It is a trend amongst other podcasts. We're going to try that today. The, here, you can set it up a little bit better sure. than me, but but you had an opportunity to uh, to interview Dan McLaughlin, who's senior writer at National Review Online on a number of different subjects. So why don't you tell the people what the interview is about, and then we'll roll it. Yeah, it's it, it was a very, very interesting discussion just to set the table. So when uh, our intern classes come in, uh, we have a curriculum set up uh, called Philosophy of Freedom, really kind of going through uh, the the intellectual history of conservatism, you know, going all the way back to, you know, to Burke, if not Runnymede and before that, you know. And one of the things that we've looked to do this year, and I have to give credit to both Zach McHugh and uh, Aaron Valdez, who've uh, spearheaded this as well, is we really looked at redesigning the curriculum. You might remember that this is something that Kevin envisioned when he was here. Oh, geez, I believe our first philosophy of freedom class might have been in 16 or 17, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which, as we know, was about 20, 30 years ago. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the, the content was good when he did it. You know, he had that he had that. That, that, that solid through line on conservative philosophy, because, you know, coming from is a former uh, master of a college, a former headmaster of a uh, of a school. He was able to actually trace that through. Now, when he left, we obviously had to uh, divvy up that. And so I, I think the people that we have on the different segments right now are absolutely um, are absolutely a great I'm, I'm bookending it I'm doing the opening one that we're about to about to discuss uh, as well as the uh, closing one but then we also have like subject matter experts like uh, our own Chance Weldon who we've had on the show before mm -hmm. comes in and does one on kind of the animating principle of the founding Josh Trevino does the Texas and American uh, constitutions you know just it's, it's a great great program but under this new rubric we really wanted to uh, kick it off with a basically a a well-known thinker on the matter and really just have a, have a have an open discussion and set the table for the i think we're up to eight or nine modules in this uh uh in this curriculum now and this conversation was was no different I, you know i guess if we had to call it anything we'd call it uh we talked about tocqueville trump and taking a base because we definitely <laughs> covered uh, baseball on the front end and the back end uh, as well as a lot of the undergirding of American politics going all the way back to the founding uh, up to the present day. Well, great. Well, if you'll permit us, we're going to get a little bit intellectual for once uh, on this show uh, instead of the normal uh, current events and hot takes um, and bad jokes, of course. So uh, with that, Jefferson, roll it. Uh, without further ado, I'd like to just jump right in. Uh, and introduce from National Review, Dan McLaughlin, who's a senior writer over there. You may have read some of his other stuff uh, prior to at Red State, uh, The Federalist, uh, BaseballCrank.com is is, uh, is the website that he runs. We're going to talk a little bit about baseball today as well. And uh, just really looking forward to getting this conversation started for those um, who haven't participated in this program before. This is obviously our kind of level set for our intern class. We really like to walk them through why it is we do what we do here, why it is we believe what we believe, and really kind of use that as the foundation for the policy work that we do. So without further ado, Dan, if you'd like to come up here and join me. Thanks for having me here. 
Uh, there it's we go. always better when it's on. <laughs> uh, that's okay. I'm the uh, the AV folks in the back tell me I oftentimes don't need a microphone, so um, that's uh, <laughs> that, that's something I've been told before. So, want to jump right in? So, obviously, baseball crank—that's your Twitter handle. People know you as that online. You've obviously opined on many things. I think. It's a good jumping off point because baseball in and of itself is a good proxy for our politics, specifically on the conservative side. Uh, you know, we've had the, uh, the, you know, many stories of George Will. Uh, I think he follows a small team in Washington. Uh, really unsure of their name at the moment, but obviously big proxy for politics. So let me just wade right into that. Mr. Baseball Crank, and ask you, where are we at on the universal designated hitter, on the ghost runner, on the pitch clock, all these new in innovations in that particular? Yeah, line. I mean, innovation innovation is a hard thing in baseball because it's such a traditional sport. And and, and I think that is one reason why we, we associate baseball with a, a certain uh, style of the conservative mind, in a sense, although obviously football appeals to a, a different side of that. Um <laughs> You know, I, 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 the ghost runner to me is heresy. That is absolutely heresy because that is a correct take, sir. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, um, you know, I, I like to say that, that one of the things about the pitch clock, to compare it to the pitch clock, the concept of the pitch clock is to reduce the time, you know, between plays when nothing's happening. So ultimately, even though the pitch clock is a bit of a break with tradition, it is intended to give you more baseball in your baseball game. And the ghost runner is intended to give you less baseball in your baseball game. And that's bad. Uh, you know, it, it, it hastens the end of an extra inning game. And I mean, particularly as a, as a New York Mets fan, I grew up with many, many legendary, uh, you know, bizarrely long extra inning games, uh, you know, which, which is a great highlight of the game. Excellent. And so universal designated hitters. Now, that's a more controversial one, I know. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I find it sad as a longtime National League fan. Um, I, I prefer you know, the old way of doing things without the designated hitter or, you know, failing that, the distinctive distinctiveness of the the different culture of the two leagues based on there being one DH and, and one not. If we had, I think if we had a hundred Otanis, we could have a more, uh, a more three-dimensional conversation about that. But I definitely agree with, uh, with that particular thing. So I want to, I want to kind of take a step back because we're still talking about the, the, the broader underpinnings of, of conservative philosophy here. So just for, for folks not familiar, can you kind of describe your, I would say ideological evolution. Did you, did you have a libertarian phase in uh, college that you grew out of and how'd you end up where you are? Uh, no, um, <laughs> I mean, look, frankly, I'm, I, I was born in 1971. So I am, I, when I say that I am a Reaganite, I, I'm Reaganite through and through beginning to end. Uh, you know, I, I came of age with Reagan. I grew up listening to Reagan and watching Reagan more so even than like reading columnists or listening to the radio or reading political philosophers. So for me, everything starts with Reagan and, and goes from there, which is not a bad place to start, not only because he was great and and we were so terribly spoiled, our generation, as we've seen since then, um, but because I think when you, when you read the great political philosophers uh, and commentators and theorists, I think there's no substitute for the political philosophers who have been in the arena. Uh, you know, and, and who have developed their ideas, political science is the science of human beings. You know, it is a science of human beings. I guess there, there are other efforts at that, but it's, um, you know, there's a great value to people who can associate that with actually having done politics. 
uh, you know, and 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 have learned something, you know, people like Burke and Tocqueville who, uh, you know, wrote some of their great works while they were in office or out of, or, or after being in office. That's actually a great segue into a point I wanted to hit while we're kind of in this part of this phase of the discussion. You had a four part series on Tocqueville probably about a couple months ago, we'll say uh, online. And I th thought that was fascinating because a lot of folks, specifically on the conservative side, when we talk about Tocqueville, we really like to focus about Tocqueville's time in America. But your perspective was balanced and it definitely focused heavily on the actual experience uh, in France. Can you give us kind of a, a synopsis of your four-part series and specifically extracting those individual lessons that apply to what we're experiencing today? Yeah, because, I mean, Tocqueville, Tocqueville wrote Democracy in America when he was a very young man. Uh, so that actually he wrote before he had been in politics, uh, and it made a name for him that got him into politics. But um, he wrote uh, another book called Reflections. I think the original title in French is Souvenirs. Uh, which is, you know, the, the more proper translation. But he wrote it about the 1848 revolution in France, um, and at which point he had been in office uh, for over a decade and, and was at the peak of his career. He was in his early 40s. He was around the same age as Louis Napoleon, who ultimately comes out of that revolution as the elected president of France and later stages a coup to uh, eliminate the, the Second Republic. And so what Tocqueville traces goes all the way from the collapse of the monarchy in February of 1848 um, to sort of the descent of France into a certain amount of disorder, uh, the attempt of the socialists to have a socialist revolutionary government, uh, which was terribly unsuccessful. And then ultimately you have the people elect uh, by a massive margin, Louis Napoleon, who spends a, uh, about two years in office as the elected president before he stages a coup and then later becomes emperor. And and the lessons, you know, Tocqueville sort of starts with, I kind of walked through how each of these different stages failed, right? And the lesson for that is is so much about the political culture, that we see some of the same signs of a decayed political culture and a decayed political class uh, in America today, it looks familiar to us. Um, and, and Tocqueville is a brilliant aphorist. So he has, you know, a great one liner, a, uh, a sketch of a character on every page, but you know, he started, he gave this speech in January of 1848, just before the revolution, you know, warning, warning that like when a political class is unfit to rule, that's when the government falls. And, 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 you know, he gives this sort of thundering peroration about, you know, don't even worry about changing the laws, change the laws if you must, but change the spirit of the government. It, you know, it is driving you into the ditch it driving you into the abyss. Um, and so many of the different, you know, I, I could go at length, but, but so many of the different Please. stages <laughs> of, of things that happened are things that we see in our own system. For example, he, you know, he says, looking back on this speech, he's like, you know, it didn't make that much of an impression because everybody in the French assembly was so used to saying, you know, my enemies are terrible and the, the state is doomed and all the, all of this catastrophizing rhetoric. And they're so accustomed to it. He's like looking back. He's like, I'm not sure I even believed it myself. And he gave this big speech, you know, oh, gentlemen were sleep, sleeping on the side of a volcano. And yet, you know, because they were so accustomed to dealing in doom, saying uh, as a routine matter that they didn't see it coming uh, when it finally came. And, and one of the things, for example, the uh, there was this, the banquet movement, right? Cause these moderate 
middle class, uh, smaller Republicans who wanted to push reform on the monarchy, they were holding meetings across the country, which were in classic French style, styled as banquets. <laughs> um, and there's a showdown with the king. And the king, who is 74, and he's he doesn't have the vitality that he once had, he doesn't crack down on them directly. But he basically, he's, as, as Tocqueville put it, they they agreed to a duel at the bar of justice, right? They were going to, the king was going to try to let them go through with their last banquet in Paris and then have them brought up on charges, which is, again, something that we see in our own system right now, which is the political class kind of punting issues into the courts and into the prosecutorial system and the, ju the judges. Um, another thing, for example, that happens then is, is you know, the monarchy collapses. Uh, as Tocqueville says, you know, the government wasn't overthrown. It was allowed to fall. Um, and the socialists think, oh, this is our moment now. You know, the king is gone. Um, and, uh, and, and they have universal suffrage. We're going to have elections all across the country. We're going to elect an assembly. And the, now the people will rule. The socialists are like all from Paris, right? They have forgotten or not considered the fact that most of the country is farmers mm -hmm. who own their own land. They're not really all that hot to abolish private property. Uh, and so they, you know, they elect this assembly that is totally uninterested in socialism. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I mean, one of the things that's funny to me too, is reading Tocqueville was from Normandy. He was, this is actually enormously important. He was not a Parisian, so he did not fall, you know, he had a more, um, uh, Anglo-American contacts and outlook. Um, and he didn't fall into the trap of thinking that Paris was France. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting to read to his account of going back and campaigning for votes, um, you know, in places like Cherbourg and St. Lo, because, uh, you know, you think of what those names meant to the cause of liberty a century later uh, than 1848. Yeah, and I think that that's a really good that's that's a really good point to make. Specifically, that you know, while we're talking about, and this is actually the one time that we actually can accurately apply the actual seating arrangement of the General Assembly on the left and the right. Um, whereas you you know you had the folks on the left that Dan just mentioned, but you know if we put this in the modern parlance, far be it from me to say that the current day GOP is the the reinvigoration of the Girondin, right? And so I think that it's really important to understand that the reason, much for the reasons you listed, that the failure of the French Revolution, its descent into its myriad uh, failures, also kind of comes from the, the intellectual animation of the revolution unto itself. You know, there's a lot of contrasting between the, you know, the, the Scottish Enlightenment, which was largely, I, I would argue, largely influential of, of the American Revolution versus the French Enlightenment, which uh, <laughs> at least uh, titularly called such, uh, which really almost, other than having the E word, really doesn't have much values in common. How do you see what happened in the American experience different from what, that which you just outlined in the French? I mean, our revolution, I mean, our revolution, first of all, was a, to a large part, sometimes this is overstated by conservative writers. It was in many ways a conservative revolution. It was intended to preserve liberties of, you know, Englishmen, the traditional liberties of Englishmen uh, in the American colonies that they felt the king was trampling on. 
Um, and, and so it was not intended as a social revolution, even though, as you know, people like Bernard Bailyn have written, it did affect a social revolution by spreading these kind of small R Republican mores throughout society that that it broke down some of this sort of patriarchal culture of uh, you know, in which in which sort of the gentleman is at the top and everyone else is a dependent of him in one way or another, the indentured servants and all that. Um, which, you know, has downstream effects because that's what kind of isolates slavery because slavery didn't seem as out of character and out of place in a society that was like that as it did in a society that was obsessed with the idea of, you know, every man's equality with every other. Um, but at the same time, there were things that the revolution changed enormously uh, in America um, uh, and that, that were grading on, you know, some of the influential colonists um, and some of that was just that they wanted to expand West and the British government wouldn't let them. But when you look at the economic system, um, I, I did a piece on this a little while ago about George Washington and his role in the economy. I mean, the, the revolution before the revolution, there were enormous restrictions on what kind what could be domestically manufactured. There were trade barriers between the different colonies. Um, and so, you know, there was not money. There literally was there was they were out of money. They, they, there wasn't enough money in circulation to have the liquidity that an economy needs. And so all of this is changed by the revolution and later by the Constitution. It creates this national market that is geographically larger than any country in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it creates free the free trade zone uh, internally. It creates currency. Uh, you know, under Hamilton, they're able to establish uh, something like sound national currency um and you know and and do away with a lot of the dependence on uh you know for example being able to start a comp start a company you didn't need to get a royal charter from the governor or 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 from you know well-connected people in london you state could just let you start a business and so that affected an economic revolution that I think is sometimes underrated when we think about the difference between America in 1774 um, and America in 1796 at the end of the Washington administration. Now, can I characterize that? And again, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but the economic revolution, and I think that's a very interesting point and one that's not made very frequently. Do you think that the essential nature of the economic part of the revolution is one based so or I'll say solely, but largely on decentralization, which kind of, which is a I, I would say a great pricey into autonomy? Yeah, it's it's decentralizing, but it's not totally decentralizing. It's not totally decentralizing in the sense that that Washington and Hamilton were nationalists, right? They 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 did want there to be a national market. Uh, and so in that sense, they didn't want state particularism to and local particularism to override a national market. But other than that, other than that part of it, yes, it was decentralizing. It was removing, you know, royal power and parliamentary distant across the ocean parliamentary power from, you know, local economic activity. Excellent. I, I appreciate that, Dan. And I want to I want to want to ask, because I think that this is, you know, as, as we approach the modern day and applying some of the philosophical uh, items that we've discussed, you know, I don't know whether uh, it was Trump touching the orb in Saudi Arabia or the death of Harambe, but obviously the world right now, I would or say the Cubs winning the World Series. Uh, that's I, I was about to say we could unpack the latent evil in that, uh, but that's uh, probably its own standalone uh, program. 
uh, make sure nobody out here is a Cubs fan, but, um, but we definitely, and I, and I think that it, it is appropriate to say that we look at the current body politic and our, 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 our the current state of politics as it is. And we tend to th- see things all through this interpretive lens of Trump. Right. And I would, and I think that's, while that's a bit overdetermined, I also think it's a little bit lazy because my take on that would essentially be Trump as a, as a man or as a, a man ascendant into the, uh, the the political sphere is more of a symptom uh, as opposed to a uh, as a, as opposed to a cause of all the things that we lament in this current system. Uh, so, what is your kind of prognosis of this current political moment? Yeah, I mean, I think I think if you well, I think you have to separate sort of Trump now from Trump in 2015, 2016. And I think that 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 there's a lot of danger, actually, in people trying to prognosticate the election or how Trump would be in office if he is elected um, from the lens of 2016. You know, it's it's we're eight years later. He's eight years older. He's been through a lot of experiences that have changed his own uh, view of some things. Um, I, I agree that the if you look at the rise of Trump, that Trump is as much at that point a symptom as a cause. I mean, yes, there's a cause. The cause, you know, of his specific rise does have a lot to do with his personality, his enormous fame, um, you know, just his ability to attract all of this media attention and suck it away from uh, his rivals for the nomination. Um. But there's no question that there was a lot of pent up frustration within the uh, the Republican Party and the the Republican primary electorate, and a you know there has been a breach of trust between the Republican grassroots and the party leadership, and and um, and, and I think it it goes in both directions too. It's particularly since 2016 that I think you have the 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 you know, sort of traditional party establishment has kind of lost faith in the voters uh, as well as the other way around. Um, but uh, where we are now, though, I think is that we're in a situation where Trump himself has an enormous uh, impact, which I think is a bad impact in in terms of I think he's now at the point where, you know, he he's a kind of a revolutionary figure. And sometimes in, in throughout history, revolutionary figures who are not themselves necessarily virtuous figures um, can still do great things just by, you know, arriving and shaking things up. Um, But often you need to have a transition from the revolutionary figure to somebody who actually runs things. Mm -hmm. Um, The American revolution was uh, even a little bit like that, although in the sense that, you know, our first president wasn't Sam Adams. Um, but Washington was, was unusual in being a successful revolutionary and a successful founder. Um, but I, I do think that, that we're in a point where there's a lot of things that the, both the Republican party and sort of the conservative and conservative slash libertarian movements need to be doing in terms of thinking about policy, thinking about activism, thinking about ideas, thinking about recruiting of new people into the movement and I really do think that Trump is now standing in the, and winning elections. And I think Trump has been standing in the way of a lot of that, of, of you know, the point where the party's broke and uh, has trouble attracting, you know, has trouble keeping people uh, recruited to run for office and has trouble getting a conversation out there about issues and that sort of thing. Are you, am I to understand you correctly that you're saying that George Santos is not the next George Washington? 
Strange. Well, uh, it might be on his resume. <laughs> <laughs> it actually lists George Washington very, very much so. But no, I want, I want to kind of unpack that because you hit on something important, specifically the terms of thing of policy and growing the coalition, growing the tent. What do you think are some of those items? And I'm not asking you, you know, what what should be the, the prototypical 2.0 of the Republican platform or anything like that. But in broad strokes, what do you think kind of are the areas that maybe under even under a, a Reaganite fusionist understanding of large R republicanism that incorporates small R republicanism. What are some of the items that need to be part of that conversation? Yeah. And, and again, I don't want to be unduly pessimistic in, in the sense that, you know, leadership, it, it surprised, it, it, it always surprises us how much not only leadership matters, but how much leadership can change things, mm. right? There's a reason that the Republican party went from the party of Nixon to the party of Reagan like that, mm. you know, and, and, and from the party of Bush to the party of Trump, um, you know, when there's a new leader in town, people will follow the leader more than than you would think. And, um, oh, boy, if you look down the ranks of, you know, people who who talk and write about Republican politics and you listen to how some of them sounded in 2003 <laughs> compared to, you know, say on foreign policy compared to how some of those same people sound today. Um, leadership does make a very big difference. Um, but um, I do think I mean, one of the things I think that that that. You know, fusionism historically, right? There was this 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 movement in the in the late fifties and early sixties centered at National Review um, to have this big argument about what conservative is, conservatism is and find a way to fuse together, uh, in a sense. And fusionism, like so many movements in political history, is it was named by its opponents. <laughs> um, uh, but it was you know essentially the idea that 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 you know, the pursuit of virtue and the pursuit of liberty were not necessarily at odds. They were not enemies that that the greater space, private space you created away from the government, the greater space there was for both uh, institutions and individuals to develop uh, civic virtue and personal virtue. Um, but, you know, the 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 elements have not always been fused in exactly the same way throughout the history of the movement or the party. I, I mean, I think, look, if you go back to the very beginning of the Republican Party, party was very classically liberally oriented, right? And, and Lincoln is probably the most classical liberal, pure classical liberal we've ever had uh, as a president. But from the very beginning, that was as an organization, maybe more so than an explicit philosophy, it was fused with um, – you know, the culture of the Midwest and American nationalism and, you know, Christian Victorian era Christian moralism. Um, I think Grant, if you look at Grant's presidency and Grant is such an underrated figure in American history, although he's, uh, as some would say, being recognized more and more. Um, but, you know, it embodies a lot of a lot of that side, actually, of the party. Um uh, you know, and there are others. I mean, Seward, for example, Lincoln's Secretary of State is is very much an aggressive American nationalist, even though he's you know in domestic politics very much cut from the same cloth as Lincoln. Um, but anyway, the different elements don't always have to fuse in exactly the same way, mm -hmm. at least in terms of the political movement. I think there's what I've called the new republicanism, um, 
which is a, a, a not yet fully formed thing, but it is something that I think we've seen, you know, some of the governors leading the way on, um, you know, uh, DeSantis and Abbott and, and Youngkin uh, and Kemp and, and some of the other, uh, you know, Republican governors who have been trying to deal with this question of private power um, and, you know, what Republicanism, if you think about what is Republicanism, right, the simple answer is, well, the Republic is a country without a king, right? But it's also a country without an entrenched aristocracy. It is the idea, and it was very big in the early Republic, right? It, the idea of, um, you know, that, that we were against having these entrenched groups that had power that couldn't be removed by elections, couldn't be removed by the forces of the market, that the, the ordinary person didn't get a say in whether or not these people had a kind of permanent position at the top, right? The Jacksonians were big uh, on that. And then the reaction against the Jacksonians was big on that too, right? Because the early Republican Party starts to look at the slave power as an entrenched aristocratic kind of thing, whereas the Jacksonians looked at the bankers that way. Um, and so we have that again today. We have this question of, you know, the, the leaders in journalism and academia and these all these institutions, the administrative state. There's all these people that we can't remove by elections and we also can't remove them by the market. Um, and what do you do with that? And how much of that is something the government can or should do something about? Uh, certainly, I think the government can and should do less to prop up and support those uh, people and institutions, but how do you how do you break some of that power without breaking your fundamental principles about the liberty of private spaces? Uh, you know, it's it's a question that has not been fully answered. I, I really like that you hearken back to the the genesis of of National Review because I think that illustrates one of the ecological factors that that brand of conservatism really. Uh, fostered it. And and I think that is basically countervailing the threat of communism. You know, anti-communism was was a very, very cohesive motive on the left end, or I, well, I shouldn't say on the far left, but you know, on the at least across both political parties at the time. So anti-communism was a very strong animating principle. Nowadays, and we're going to get in this here in a minute with uh, our, our little modern day Walter Durante, um, but nowadays we tend to see there is no, I would say, unifying adversary. Might there be one arising? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, anti-communism was not only a unifying factor on the right; it was a clarifying factor on the left. Right? It forced the center left, the liberals, to to define themselves, and even forced socialists to define themselves as we're socialists, we're not communists. Right? And it required them to develop a language to do that. Um. You know, is there a single uh, unifying adversary out there? Obviously, it's not, um, you know, it's not the Hamas and other Islamic groups, Iran. It's not Russia. Um, it could be China. It maybe should be all of those things acting together as a de facto new axis, which I think they are. Um, but Americans need... You know, Americans won't think of them that way until something even more dramatic happens than what's already happened. And there's been a lot of dramatic events on the global stage in the past two years. Um, at the same time, you know, look, if aliens landed from another planet and invaded us, 
Reagan used to have a line about this, about the little green men arriving from outer space. But it's entirely possible that they would succeed in dividing us along our existing lines, right? Um, you know, when, when Cortez arrived uh, in, in Mexico, uh, you know, the, the the indigenous tribes didn't all unite against him. They were like, oh, this guy's going to get rid of the Aztecs. <laughs> I, I think that's a I think that's a very a, a very illustrating point. You know, one of the uh, one of the segments I I teach in this curriculum, you know, I like to say that again, very, paraphrasing Reagan. You know, I guarantee if the uh, aliens landed, uh, whether it's on the you know the uh, National Mall or up up the street at the uh, Texas Capitol, they come out of their space uh, spaceship. They say, "Look, we bring you abundant limitless uh, a limitless energy, the cure for all known diseases." And the first thing that, uh, you know, most of these folks that we would consider kind of the uh, elites in public discourse going, yeah, but what do you think about that whole Fannie Willis thing yesterday? And I think that it's one of those. How does this affect Donald Trump? Yeah, exactly. You guys don't have any space indictments, do you? Um, but that, be that be that as it may, I think that's also uh, I got kind of these fault lines that you talk about. It's, it's, it's starting to get illustrative of, uh, of where we're seeing. Because we see on the right this insurgency of – you know, using some of the uh, the language you've already used, I don't know what better way of phrasing it than things that are fundamentally in political philosophy, what would be known as radicals, anti on the right, conservative or, well, at least, you know, reactionary anti anti-institutionalists and, you know, people that have already proclaimed that the American experiment is done, that everything is, you know, a, a steaming pile of rubble with drag queen story hours being hosted on it, and that there is no policy prescription by which to get out of this. And now, obviously, policy being downstream of culture, I understand that that's a bit of a simplification. But but that being said is, how do you diagnose the thing? All right, you know, we just saw, you know, I mentioned Walter Durant earlier, we saw Tucker you know, talking about how great, uh, you know, Moscow subway stations are, the fact that they have both beets and leaks in their uh, grocery stores. But we generally run into the problem of, yeah, that's, you know, it makes people might scratch, you know, the I would say people that aren't that well read on this might scratch their beard and say, hmm. But what we don't see is any sort of further converse, uh, conversation about the fact that today the political leader of the opposition was died. Is no longer with us. Yeah, asterisk. Yeah, di died of causes that are either very directly or slightly more indirectly the work of of, of Vladimir Putin. Um, and, and I mean, look, obviously the 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 great question is, and then what, right? And that I mean, to a certain extent, even if even though Tucker Carlson, I think, has probably done more in the past week to discredit himself than he has done before and look i'm no fan of tucker i think he's he's done and said a lot of things that were you know not true or you know morally bad or both but what i think is uniquely damaging to him about toadying to putin uh, in this sense and not being just kind of anti-anti-putin but being sort of pro-regime uh, you know, pro the Russian regime and, and trying to tell people that things are fine in Russia um, is that I think it undermines his brand because his he's supposed to be the skeptic, right? The guy who asks questions, sometimes even the questions that are a little crazy to ask, but, you know, hey, maybe the little green men have already been here. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it's I think it's damaging. But at the end of the day, the part of the reason there's an audience for what 
Tucker has been selling is that the American people, you know, even I think a lot of Americans who sympathize greatly with Ukraine still have this question of, okay, but then what? Like, mm -hmm. how are we actually going to, you know, is it worth the money or, or how are we actually going to beat these guys in a war? Is it worth the attempt? Is it is it just going to be something we're bogged down paying for for years and years and years? Yeah, and I think that's an important thing to to to, to latch onto because what we generally see, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, we we have we have good folks here in the building, not just in our intro program, but generally, who who do come to different conclusions on that particular uh, policy question. And you know, the world is a far more complex and nuanced place than West equals unmitigated good, authoritarianism equals unmitigated bad. But to your point, to equivocate between the two require absolutely hurtling over dozens of bright lines that have been established, not just in, you know, foreign policy convention, civic discourse, but of morality, of morality as well. And so I think that one of the issues that we've seen there is not this, that it's happening on the right, of, of which we just illustrated, it's happening on the left as well. And we're bouncing them off each other. For example, so we're here, uh, downtown Austin, we're about about four or five blocks from the start of uh, Texas's uh, 35th congressional district uh, held by uh, Greg Kassar as a former uh, city councilman here famously of the defund the police movement. Um, his biggest contribution to the national political discourse was he once forgot to take a drink of water for a few hours um, in order to protest a bill that says that uh, cities aren't lawmakers unto themselves. And this is kind of indicative in, in, in my mind this is indicative of this performative nature that specifically Congress. I'm not, and I'm not saying that other institutions aren't haven't had their own little three ring circuses too. But it almost is now foundational that the American legislature, that Congress, it's more about get you know doing the uh, sprays on Fox. It's about getting the uh, the click. It's about delivering a a, a a sermon in front of an empty chamber. What can we do or what can be done at all to arrest that slide into pure performance bread and circuses? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a d disagreement with our current Congress. I think we should have one uh, <laughs> and, and not just have it be the world's largest green room. Um, and, uh, you know, we've gotten out of the habit of what's supposed to be the first branch of government uh, actually make the rules um and demand that they be enforced i actually think I, I actually think even though there's some quarrels over exactly what we think the proper standard for impeachment should be mm. um and i think we've degraded that a lot with some of the recent impeachments um i think it's wonderfully good for american civic health to have a cabinet secretary impeached uh we should do it more often um and specifically you know, not impeached for doing his job poorly uh, or, you know, making some bad discretionary decisions, all of which are perfectly fine subjects for accountability at the ballot box uh, or in a hearing, but for flatly refusing to enforce the law. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of shocking and, of course, a sign of, um, again, the decay of civic education even among say, Americans who have been in high federal office for half a century, um, that the president's response to discovering that uh, he and his administration are failing to enforce the law is to ask for more laws. <laughs> and, and so that's that kind of takes us to the, the end of the current 
era. And, you know, we're obviously, you know, things don't change overnight, but it is wholly plausible and obviously on a long enough timeline, inevitable that this era, however defined in politics, will end. Obviously, some of the people that are at the the top of that pyramid are more seasoned in age, I think is fair to say. Um, and we, you know, and soon they will go to their eternal reward, such as it is. In doing so, will how do you see us exiting this era? Do you see this as a linear projection to way things are going? This is a spastic fit that we've, you know, just are kind of using to exercise some demons and we'll return to a general stasis or, you know, some third option. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I you know, it's hard to predict the future. Of course, I, I think history does tell us though, that, that an era like this one probably will end in something fairly dramatic that changes people's minds in a hurry. Um, I mean, look, the populist. Would a Lions Super Bowl qualify as that? Uh, well, we didn't. We didn't quite get there, but We're getting close. But yeah, I mean, you know, look, uh, they said men would walk on the moon before the Mets won the World Series, and you know that that the Cubs would win the World Series before Donald Trump gets elected president. Well, both of those things <laughs> turned out to be true. So yeah, I was actually looking forward to the Lions getting in the Super Bowl just for that kind of let's really spin the wheel and see what happens <laughs> in this timeline. Um. I mean, the populist era of the 1890s, uh, which became then the progressive era, um, you know, it ended in the First World War, frankly. Uh, and so, you know, I think eras in the past that have had these kind of enthusiasms, uh, something comes along to remind people that they've got bigger things to worry about. That's that's a great, great encapsulation, I think, of where we're I, I would say the question mark that exists over the next 10, 15, 20 years. But let me ask you on a specific application, because you've written about this a lot, uh, specifically on the, the the effort now, you know, out of Colorado, out of Maine, which I think is even less defensible, uh, to basically eliminate President Trump from the ballot. Why, you have been very, very critical about that. Yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, I've been critical in a way that is maybe different from other people. I think it's completely legitimate for them to be doing this. I just think they're wrong. I think they, I, I think the, and, and I think, frankly, that the Supreme Court's not going to put, stand for it. There's probably at most one vote. Sotomayor seems the only justice whose vote is even in question as far as whether she would vote to disqualify Trump. Um, uh, but I, I, I have a suspicion the court is going to get it wrong. Um, I think the 14th Amendment is self-executing. Uh, I think the states do have the power and indeed the duty to disqualify uh, candidates who have engaged in insurrection. Um, I don't think that the amendment, as it is written, requires a criminal conviction to do that. Uh, I don't think Congress has required there to be a criminal conviction to do that. Uh, and, and I don't, I'm not terribly persuaded by the argument that the language of the amendment doesn't cover the president or the presidency. Um, but all that being said, you know, <laughs> there is a fixed meaning, a, a fixed and discernible meaning to the text when it says engaged in insurrection and it's not what Trump did, uh, you know, sort of rage tweeting from your couch while the insurrection's going on is not the same thing as storming the barricades. Um, it's not the same thing as providing, you know, literally material aid 
to an ongoing insurrection. Um, you know, the cases uh, that Congress decided in the late 1860s about who to seat, who not to seat, they, they drew a pretty clear line and they were the ones who had written the amendment saying, look, in political incitement before the fact is not engaging in insurrection. Well, Dan, this kind of brings us to the end of the program. I want to make sure we reserve some time for question and answers with this great discussion that we've had. But I want to pose one question uh, before we open it up. And that is a two-parter is one, I want you essentially to give me uh, a reason to, that justifies a pessimistic outlook. But then the follow-up to that is then I want a reason why optimism should prevail. Yeah. Well, the pessimistic outlook, I mean, my biggest source of pessimism right now is very much Trump related. And it's the sense that there's a, a, a great window of opportunity right now um, that, you know, for for the conservative movement and the Republican Party and the country, and that I think we may miss that window of opportunity because we're so consumed in the drama of one man and that that drama puts people off who might otherwise join our cause um you know and um i, I mean i think it kind of you know it sort of blots out the sun uh a little bit um and you want be you know I, one of the things for example i think there's an enormous in the electorate what i've been calling a youth dividend which is that people have been sitting through these geriatric leaders and the first time somebody comes forward with somebody who's not that they're going to have a big opportunity. And um, it's sad for the Democratic Party that they didn't even give their voters that choice. And it's sad for the Republican Party that they did give their voters that choice and they didn't take it. Um, and so here we are. And, you know, you you can't always recapture a, a missed moment. Um, to be optimistic, other than the obvious fact that our current two political party leaders um, actuarially will not be with us forever and constitutionally at least one of them will be eliminated from ever running again by this election um uh you know it, it, i mean that's that's the part of the optimistic case and the other is just that um you know progressivism doesn't work and the longer people see it at work i mean if you look at what the political landscape looked like in the late 1960s and the early 1970s. And even with Nixon in, in office, sometimes especially with Nixon in office, there were all sorts of reasons to think that there was no hope uh, that, you know, here you have, you know, this, this hegemony of liberalism um, astride the American uh, economy and foreign policy. Um, and you looked at, the next generation coming up and it was the barbarians at the gates, the boomers, the boomers are going to be, Oh, they're going to be so far left. They've all voted for McGovern. Right. And, and, uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, in 1976, uh, is only one of two candidates in the history of public opinion polling. Barack Obama's the other to win a presidential election while losing voters over the age of 30. Right. Cause you know, the baby boom generation, was turning the, the oldest members of the generation were just hitting 30 in 1976. So there was every reason to believe that things were not only politically bad, philosophically bad, economically bad, um, but that demographically they were going to get worse. Uh, and they didn't. So, you know, there is always hope. 
Well, I really appreciate that perspective, Dan, and, and thank you so much for sharing it. What I'd like to do now is just open up the question and answers for uh, folks here. Uh, just make sure that uh, when you raise your hand, wait till uh, Erica gets you with the microphone, just so that uh, any folks uh, watching from our uh, remote um, uh, remote offices are able to uh, hear what your question is as well. Andrew. Dan, thank you very much for being here. And I really appreciated the discussion you had about fusionism. It's a philosophy that profoundly influenced my development as a conservative. And one of the things in the current um, battle for the soul of conservatism that's going on right now, I'm seeing fusionism has become a dirty word in some circles. Is fusionism dead? Or if not, do we need a new fusionism? And if so, what would that look like? What comes out of that process at the end? I, I, I think a new fusionism is kind of where we're headed and where we should be headed, but it doesn't have to be philosophically all that different from the old one. I think it just has to be thought through in a way that applies to a new set of circumstances. Uh, I mean, the, the, you know, our philosophy is not that different from the philosophy of the conservatives of the 1920s or the classical liberals and conservatives of the, you know, 1860s, but it applied to a different set of circumstances, dealt with different problems, and it had to think about some specific things differently. Uh, so I, I think things can be rethought, re-argued from first principles with an understanding that conservatives Conservatism is a philosophy. It's not an ideology. It can contain ideologies, but it's a philosophy. And that philosophy allows you to combine different elements of your first principles differently in different circumstances because conservatism is all about experience, all about the real world. Excellent. Oh, Christian? Oh, Eddie's bringing it around. Thanks so much for everything from your Twitter to this talk. Um, I'm curious, how much would you say the influence of the new, you can you hear me? Oh, there we go. Okay. I'm just a loud person. Um, <laughs> how much would you say the influence of the kind of new right, the Sarabamariaism, the compactism is influenced by the sort of domination of Marxism, of Com, of like social socialist communist ideology in the college campus. And that's the people who are being taught that are still conservative by nature, but they're getting an intellectual tradition that's collectivist and that doesn't believe in free markets. Yeah. Well, I, first of all, I think the thing about the new right, other than the fact that it's more accurately described as like the new, 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 right. Cause we've been through so many new rights over the years, but it's also not one. There's not just one of it. Um, and you know, and that's that's also something that's been a constant throughout conservative history is that is that you see what maybe from a distance looks like a unified movement. And the closer you get to it, it's, you know, there's people bickering back and forth over small differences. Um, and so, you know, I think that that, uh, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the people who are coming up with sort of their own personal philosophies don't necessarily all agree with each other. Um and that gets me back again to my point, leadership matters, um, because it's it's when somebody is able to marshal all of this together um, and put it into, you know, a public philosophy and a, and a movement, um, the higher up the leadership ladder you get, the more unification there is around what exactly the principles are. Uh, Aaron, right over here. 
Thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation. My question comes from the uh, a place of um, sort of the world of education, right? Which is where I, I work. Um, so we're seeing this huge wave of the school choice uh, movement just sweeping the country. It's it's taking hold in ways we've never seen it before. Um, at the same time, you know, there's this small C conservative impulse to reform existing institutions, right? Rather than build new ones. Um, could you talk to that tension and how we in our own personal lives should approach um, uh, reforming an institution we love and care about and has a long history of existence rather than starting a new one? What are the risks and rewards of both? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's one that I've thought about a lot. Uh, I, I thought about it going back all the way to when I was in college and they, uh, um, decided on our campus to found a, um, a conservative paper, but I had a position as a weekly op-ed columnist in the main campus paper. And I thought, you know what, I've got a bigger audience here. Why am I going to do that? Um, so I stayed where I was. Um, you know, I think there is, it is unpredictable again to see exactly where, you know, there's this counter reaction, right? We had the long march through the institutions of the left. And now things like school choice are in a sense, the right saying we need a long march out of the institutions. Um, but there is still value in those existing institutions. And I, you know, I, I try to think of it as like the Illinois Nazi problem, right? Like think of it this way. Like, let's say you were the governor of Illinois. Let's say you were a, normal sane governor of illinois so and, one of them that ends up in prison or not yeah well yeah this is let's say like you know you yeah one out the one out of three who doesn't go to prison um but anyway let's say you're the governor of illinois and you look into the illinois school system and you discover that the public school system uh from the lowest grades to the top of the state university system is entirely dominated by the american nazi party um, and that they will not hire, they will find ways to not hire anybody who does not subscribe to the tenets of American national socialism. Um, are you obliged to be completely content neutral in every way that you handle that? Or, or, or do you have a civic obligation to do something about it? And is that obligation limited to, we have to burn down the entire Illinois school system and start a new one because we're not allowed to fire half or more of the people who work there in order to, you know, for the system to reflect the opinions of the good people of Illinois. Um, and that's, you know, that's actually, that's when you get into like the constitutional theories and stuff, it's a tough question. But um, I, I think clearly there are institutions that are beyond saving. And I think that it's, it's, it's dangerous. That, I, I, I sometimes think of this as a bundling issue. Right. Like in in economics, you talk about bundling, right? You, you you buy two products together. And sometimes if you have market power, like in antitrust law, if you have market power in one product, you can force people to buy some other thing they don't want to go with it. And I think so much of where you see the concentration of this nutty leftism is in bundled situations where they're able to say, like, oh, you like going to Disney World. Here, take some, you know, take some transgender ideology with that. Oh, you want to send your kid to Harvard? We well, have two choices. You can build a new Harvard that'll only take 400 years, or you can just suck it up and go there. And, 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 and that's why, by the way, that's why Bud Light got hit so hard, because it's really not that hard to change beers. 
Um, <laughs> it's why, you know, like the airlines or some other product that's an intensely competitive market, you see a lot less of this nonsense because they know that it's really easy for people to walk away because they're not selling you a unique product that is wrapped into the institutional capital of some something that's been built for a long time. 19th century Americans didn't have this problem. You know, Henry Raymond didn't like the two big newspapers in New York. He started the New York Times, 1851. You know, Leland Stanford could start his own university. Like, we don't do enough of that anymore. And I think we do need to do some of it. But um, I think some of it is also a, we need to do some of it, you know, or encourage your less autres, right? Like the, <laughs> y y you see enough new institutions that take a bite out of the existing one and it gets people's attention. That, that's a very, very good point. Monty. Uh, thank you for being here. I would be remiss if I didn't get a chance to ask a baseball question. <laughs> um, do you think uh, guys like Barry Bonds and, you know, Mark McGuire belong in the Hall of Fame or do you think they should stay? Uh, not in this might be the most controversial question yet. I know, right? <laughs> yes, yes. I think I think I think it makes a mockery of the Hall of Fame that Bonds and Clemens aren't there. Um, I think the only guys who should be out on that moral basis are Joe Jackson and the, and the other 1919 Black Sox conspirators because they violated the one absolutely unbreakable rule in baseball, which is you try to win, right? Pete Rose, Pete Rose on his team there's good reasons he was banned from active involvement in the game but if you ever watched pete rose play or manage that guy played every inning of every game ran at every walk like he had money riding on it because as it turned out <laughs> often he did so to speak <laughs> but rose played more baseball games than anybody else in the game's history and he played every second of every one of those to win um you know bonds uh, yeah bonds was cheating um he was breaking the law. He was trying to win. He was trying to win. And and there's lots of guys in the Hall of Fame who did that. Now, I think, you know, I think it clearly illustrates the, I mean, to put it in philosophical terms, though, um, you know, baseball failed to enforce its own rules. Uh, and competitors in a game are going to get away with whatever you let them get away with. I mean, there is a lesson there about law, right? When, when law it, when people see that the law is held in contempt by the people in charge, they, you know, they will do what's in their best interests. Uh, and I think it's totally fair when you give notice to people that these are the rules and they're going to be enforced and you get suspended and you miss a season. Well, that's fair. That's good. But the people who competed under the conditions as they were, um, you know, I think I think people are realistic about i think fans are realistic about the fact that that's always gone on you got guys in the hall of fame who threw illegal spitballs and corked their bats babe ruth corked his bat come on um so yes you can argue that some of these things are worse in a way morally than other kinds of cheating but fundamentally i think the game you know it it's it's not the hall of uh integrity it's the hall of fame that's that actually brings us to a great closing point. And now, John, hopefully you got some good stuff to bring to your softball league uh, with that. But that being said, I think that's a great point to actually close up for the day. I want to thank you all so much for coming. Thank you so much for participating. But most of all, join me in giving a round of applause to our guest, Dan McLaughlin, for that discussion. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Anytime. 
Welcome back. We hope you enjoyed that. Um, just for a minute or two, I want Derek to reflect on on what he heard uh, interviewing uh, Dan McLaughlin and and what your you know takeaways were from that interview. Yeah. So um, I, I think we can say, and uh, you know, first and foremost, I don't believe he'll be voting for uh, Mr. Trump. Um, <laughs> but but that that all that aside, I think the the best the best discussion back and forth was not only of kind of that, that founding era of American politics, but specifically what he wrote about, or well, he wrote about, and then we talked about in the discussion with, you know, Tocqueville in France, the French politician, and really kind of, you know, this is the second time I've used this reference today, but basically using France is the absolute lodestar of what not to do in politics in so many <laughs> ways. Uh, but I think that, that Tocqueville's experience in France really shows the, the fragility of the American experiment. And I'm one of the ones who makes the argument that the American experiment is very robust. You know, I think that our current system of government can survive. And, you know, Dan spoke to this as well during the interview. I think that our current system of government can survive far, far more uh, load-bearing, shocking events than we have thus far. And that even, you know, the, the darkest place of the mind, fear to wonder. That being said, it was a well keep emerging. I was going to say that was going to end on a positive note. We we, we always claim we don't do that here. So. Oh no, that's that's another thing. I, I <laughs> that's why I made sure to ask Dan, in which I'll you know obviously his answer was uh, uh, a bit a bit tongue in cheek. Uh, you know what I go, what justifies a pessimistic outlook in this moment in history? And then number two, give me a give me an optimistic reason to over to mm-hmm. overshadow that. And, you know, his answer was is very was very, very uh, telling. And I think that he has a, a bit cynical about the, the intermediate future, but not necessarily about the, the, the broad, you know, long term future. And I tend to agree with that. I think that we are, again, a, a very resilient people with a very resilient system of government. And it was nice to be able to have that opportunity to discuss that with uh, an intellect such as his. So we will leave you hopefully um, sufficiently fear mongered and still very concerned about the future of the Republic uh, <laughs> with that. Well, again, as always, we really appreciate you, uh, you all watching. We appreciate you all listening uh, to us. And um, I wasn't able to do my, my all of my normal shameless plugs, so I'll do that here. Please subscribe to the post. It's a really, really good newsletter. Uh, it's got exclusive content in there. It's always kind of fun, always kind of hot takes on what TPPF is up to and what we're doing and, and our takes on the, um, the, the news of the day and the big issues of the day. Um, so we hope you subscribe to that again. It's The Post. It's at texaspolicy.com slash The Post. Um, and as we always like to end the show, in the words of Sam Houston, do good and risk the consequences. We'll see you next time.